Hello, thanks for joining us on Space Nuts, the podcast all about astronomy and space science, also heard on community radio across Australia. Uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, we've got a lot to talk about today, including uh, methane, which might be a good marker for perhaps life on exoplanets. Uh, the speed of sound on Mars, which apparently is quite slow, they do sort of fall behind over there. And we've got audience questions about whether or not the sun has seasons, uh, why the moons and rings of Uranus are also rotating on a tilted plane, and how do you get into astronomy? How do you make it your career? Somebody wants to know because they're sick of digging holes. We'll explain all of that on this edition of Space Nuts. Thank you for joining us. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9... Ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Great to be with you once again on episode 298, no less, and uh, getting very close to episode 300. And since we spoke to you last, our plans have not actually gone uh, another inch forward. But we're working on it. Well, we're not, but we have. Um, you know, we have ideas. We have ideas. Uh, I'm Andrew Dunkley, the host, and joining me as he does every week without fail and under uh, great duress sometimes is Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Good. Well, it's morning, afternoon, or evening, depending on what time you're listening, Andrew. <laughs> How are you now, doing? Fred, um, I'm well. I, I'm I'm quite well, uh, despite being surrounded by people with COVID at the moment. Everywhere that I work, everyone's either had it or got it at the moment, and I I haven't. And I I'm wondering if I've actually caught it and just been one of these lucky people who had zero symptoms or next to no symptoms. I don't know. Um, I'm still playing it safe, but you—you've not been so lucky. You're stuck no. down in Tasmania in the um, in the great city of Launceston. That's correct. Yeah. So we, uh, I can't remember whether we mentioned it, but um, uh, Marnie, uh, my partner who runs tours, uh, which is one of the things we've done for 15 years together, taking them all over the world. Uh, we had a tour down to the islands of Tasmania. So Tasmania itself, then. Island, uh, King Island, and finally Flinders Island, which is quite rem uh, quite a remote area, population seven hundred or something like that, nine hundred. I was maybe. going to say seven. I wasn't, wasn't far, <laughs> off. far off. Yeah, uh, to the north of Tasmania, and that's where we wound up at the end of our tour, the final day of our tour. Um, a certain Fred Watson tested positive for COVID, uh, followed by most of the rest of the group. And so yesterday we were. Thanks to negotiations by Marnie, I have to say. I don't know how she did this. She made 200 phone calls yesterday. Uh, she pulled, um, basically pulled us out of there on a medevac flight. Uh, we had our own chartered aircraft with a crew who were suited up with PPE uh, to take us elsewhere because the medical facilities on Flinders Island are not uh, such as could cope with a large influx of sick people. Um so we wind up, wound up in hotel quarantine here in Launceston, which is where we're going to be for at least the next week, mm -hmm. uh, unable to go out. Fortunately, it's a lovely spot. We've got a beautiful view of the river out the window there. Um, I hope all our uh, colleagues are as lucky. The, um, the interesting part about it all, though, was um, just how, you know, how everything swings into action. So Tasmania Health, 
were were really good in the way that they cottoned on to the fact that this was you know it was quite an important thing that we needed to get these people off the island and everything else. And I, I should give a shout out as well to Darren at uh, Lady Baron, which is one of the towns on Flinders Island. He was our host in the lodge we were staying in. He did a brilliant job to cope with all these folk who were not very well. Uh, yeah, gosh. Yeah. I think you're the first person I've actually spoken to while they've had it. Oh, well, yeah, okay. So this is what it looks like, Andrew. <laughs> yeah, you, yeah. Look, you look the same, but yeah. obviously it's all, you know, up here and down there. It yeah, feels different. yeah, it's so we were, all of us have gone through a period of, of feeling as if you've got a really heavy dose of flu uh, mm. and not feeling very well at all. Uh, but that, but it lasted two or three days, and generally speaking, I, I mean, I feel pretty well today. I get the sweats and things like that occasionally, but um, hopefully. So I, I tested positive on the 27th, which is where are we now? It's three, four days ago, two, three days ago, I think. Uh, so we'll see how we go. We're all going to get tested again today, apparently. Yeah. Hopefully right. well, not in move, the middle of Just move a bit further away, if you <laughs> <Yeah>. don't mind. <laughs> I'll, I'll <laughs> One breathe. session's not far enough. <laughs> I'll breathe it. I'll breathe away from the screen. How's that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, gosh. Well, now fingers crossed that you um, you're on the mend. Uh, I've heard stories about how it hits you hard early, and then you just sort of work your way out of it. And you know, yeah. after a week or so, you go, "Well, what was that all about?" Yeah. Uh, but sometimes it lingers. You just don't know. That's it's different right. for everybody. The dreaded mm. long COVID. That's something I'd rather not have. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, so far so good. Yes, indeed. Well, thanks for doing this under the circumstances. I mean. That's fine. I suppose it, it breaks the boredom a bit. <laughs> There's no sign. I, I think I was last bored in 1959, Andrew. <laughs> uh, so, there was so much going on. <laughs> yes, that's very true indeed. And uh, there's certainly a lot going on uh, in the universe when it comes to exoplanets when we uh, dovetail this into our first story. Uh, they're suggesting that methane might be a, a, a good biomarker when searching for life. That um, that shouldn't come as a surprise, I suppose. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's now been sort of um, put forward as, as the biomarker, perhaps. Potentially, that's right. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting story, and it does go back to things that you and I have spoken about before because mm. um, methane is a well-known biomarker. Most of the methane uh, in the Earth's atmosphere is produced uh, biologically. Uh, and we've got this intriguing thing that we keep spotting plumes of methane on the planet Mars, yes. uh, which we've had great trouble tying down. And there's something going on there that we don't really know. It could be um, residual volcanism, because that's the thing about methane. It's not just uh, you know, a compound that is only produced by life. It's it, it, it's got other sources as well. And volcanism is one. Um, actually, you, you would get it from colliding, you know, you know from meteor, meteorites or something like that, or an asteroid impact would generate methane in an atmosphere. So, so it's it's uh, it, it's certainly of interest to astrobiologists, but isn't clear cut until now, <laughs> uh, because this study. Uh, which we're reporting on comes from scientists at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Uh, and what they've done <clears throat> is they've, uh, first of all, taken another look at methane as a what we call a biomarker, uh, you know, something that would reveal uh, living organisms in an atmosphere and compared it with uh, one of the other principal uh, biosignatures, uh, which, of course, is oxygen, um, mm. because oxygen 
largely is generated by living organisms. Uh, and yeah, if you found oxygen uh, out of balance with other chemicals in the atmosphere of a planet, as it is on Earth, it's out of balance chemically, and it's the life that keeps it keeps it there, uh, then that's a really good biosignature. But what they've done is, and this is a great, you know, it's a great thing to do exactly at this time. They've looked at this in the context of observations with the James Webb Space Telescope. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, in fact, oxygen is not easy to detect with the James Webb Space Telescope, whereas methane is. Uh -huh. And so what they've, what they've done in this study is looked at, okay, uh, we, if we detect methane, what can we also look for that would tell us that its origin is biological rather than something else? So they've mm. developed uh, what they call a framework for, <coughs> excuse me, interpreting the observations. Um, and so, uh, in fact, uh, there's a signature from, uh, sorry, that there is a quote here from uh, Maggie Thompson, who's uh, actually a graduate student at UC Santa Cruz. Uh, she says, uh, we want it to provide a framework for interpreting observations. So if we see a rocky planet with methane, we know what other observations are needed for it to be a persuasive biosignature. And what they've done is they've said, okay, excuse me, what are the non-biological sources of methane? Uh, and th they include volcanoes. Um, th they include, um, you know, places like mid-ocean ridges, which, which we've got running down the whole Atlantic Ocean. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, they, they release methane too. Um, hydrothermal vents, which we often find along those places. Uh, you, the, all the big picture stuff, tectonic subduction zones, you know, the, the, the stuff that's going on in the, uh, uh, in the surface of the Earth, uh, which may be going on in the, in the surface of other planets. We don't know uh, whether other planets or the planets of other stars have plate tectonics, but you can bet your life if we do, they probably do as well. Yeah, and yep, so. So what they uh, what they've done is um, you know looked at uh, what you might find alongside methane that would tell you that this the methane was more likely to be coming from a non biological source um, and the, the, one of the clues is uh, if you find a, a large amount of methane uh, then there's a really good chance it's biological because. Most of these other things that we've just mentioned, like volcanoes and you know te tectonic plates, they don't emit uh, as much um, methane um, uh, without carbon monoxide. So you've got to look for the other, you know, other elements as well, because uh, biological activity, activity uh, consumes carbon monoxide and that. Uh, and produces methane. So that would be the kind of thing you'd be looking for, the ratio of, for example, methane to carbon monoxide or carbon dioxide and other, other chemicals as well. So it's a really neat set of frameworks that they've provided, almost like a recipe for, mm. you know, <laughs> for what um, a, a, a life-containing a, a life, yeah, a, a life -containing planet might do in terms of the shape of its atmosphere. Okay, so uh, are we <coughs> suggesting perhaps that it's feasible for the James Webb <coughs> Telescope? That's all right. That's right. Uh, <laughs> is it feasible for the James Webb Telescope to focus on an exoplanet, for example, and go, 
okay, this is a prime candidate for life because we've found all this in the right proportions. Yes, exactly that. Um, one of the you know one of the things that we talk about when you're looking for life on other planets is non non equilibrium chemistry, and that's what what I was just talking about. You know, if you've got oxygen there in large quantities, then it's out of equilibrium chemically. Yeah. So yeah, so I think um, this is a really good paper, which I think kind of sets the scene for future work uh, with James Webb Space Telescope. Mm. Uh, if you'd like to read that paper, uh, you can you can see the report on um, this fabulous website that we both very much love, phys.org is where you'll find that story because, uh, yeah, I think it's great. You know what else it would tell us, Fred, if we found the right formula? That, um, that, that there would obviously be a lot of cattle on this particular planet and therefore probably McDonald's. Ah, there's an inference. I wasn't going yeah, that yeah. far. I thought you were just going to do the cattle. But, <laughs> you know, and, the, and there's a widely... Um, a widely held misconception about which end of a cow the methane comes out of. Is that right? <laughs> yes, which we we discussed in detail uh, on our on our tour around the islands of King Island. Of course, is full of cattle because that's where we yeah. get all this wonderful dairy cheese. It's the front end that's where the methane comes from, not the other end. <laughs> right. I didn't actually know that. <laughs> no. So obviously <laughs> fell for the, the half-truths as well. Yeah, we um, all do, yeah. So, uh, yeah, uh, King Island cattle. Guess what's on Kangaroo Island? Oh, um, uh, well, that's a really good – would it be ducks? <laughs> yeah, there'd be probably ducks there too. But, yeah. Um, it was so named because I think it was Matthew Flinders that, um, yep, probably. that found good resources on Kangaroo Island and food for his sailors and – um, and, and is it that one or one of the other islands, maybe a few islands around that Tasmanian chain that have some of the biggest venomous snakes in the world? Yeah, we saw one mm. too. Oh, did you? <laughs> yeah, they're, they're enormous. Yeah. They're, because of their isolation, they grow bigger for some reason. See, they're on the right track with King Kong. It's actually true that um, King Island animals Kong, living in isolation grow much, much bigger. Yeah. Yes. Mm. All right. Uh, so keep an eye on uh, future developments with the James Webb Space Telescope and those exoplanets and, and the possible methane marker. This is Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. Okay, we checked all four systems and King with a go. Space Nuts. Now, if you haven't uh, visited our website recently, uh, pop along and have a look. We're, we're adding to it all the time. There are um, several stories a day uh, that uh, get published on the Astronomy Daily tab. You can visit the shop and get Fred's latest book, which is going bang gangbusters. I think uh, Marnie's bought um, three or four <laughs> copies for him now. <laughs> and there's... Um, <laughs> <laughs> There's all sorts of other things to do, and it's across where you can send us your questions, which we'll uh, get to later uh, if you are listening on the podcast. We do the questions mainly then. Um, now, Fred, uh, we're going to talk about the speed of sound. Now, I've done a bit of homework here, and at sea level, the speed of sound uh, on Earth is 344 metres per second. But we're going to talk about the speed of sound on Mars because it's different, and it's different depending on the circumstances on Mars. That's right. Um, yeah, I always have 330 um, metres per second in my head for the speed of sound. It might not be at sea level or something like that. It might be the wrong yeah, pressure. Yeah, well, it depends. Uh, it says here it's uh, 344 metres per second at 21 degrees Celsius mm. under normal atmospheric conditions. Yeah, that sounds about right. Uh, yeah. But basically it means um, 
so that's you know that's a kilometer every three seconds which is uh ties in with um remember you count to four after you've uh uh, heard of uh, every four seconds is a is a mile away for a, fl- yeah. a, a thunderclap following a flash of lightning, and that's that sort of ties in with the same thing. So yeah, so r- roughly three hundred and thirty three hundred and forty meters per second on Earth, uh, but on Mars, um, as you've said, the the speed is different, and you wouldn't expect anything else really, given that the atmospheric pressure on Mars is what is it point six of a percent of what we have here on Earth mm. at sea level. Um, so the air is very very thin. Uh, it's it's not too thin to have quite strong winds though, and that's certainly one of the things that um, has been experienced by the various Mars rovers. Uh, but anyway, um, how do you measure the speed of sound? Well, uh, you look you for... Listen, you listen closely? <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, in fact, um, Perseverance, the, the rover that's done this, um, is well equipped to do it because it carries microphones. Uh, and I think it's the first of the NASA rovers that has actually had microphones on board. And, and you and I have played the sounds of Mars before on, on the show uh, to, to, you know, played some of the recordings from the microphones. I think we once played the drone of the, of the Ingenuity helicopter as well as it, as it was flying. Um, so what, what they've done is they've, uh, the NASA scientists have looked for something that they can identify as being the source of a sound and measure how long it takes for that sound to get to the microphone because <laughs> they know where the microphone is and if they know that where the source of the sound is then you've got the speed of sound and in fact what yeah. they've done i thought um when i thought about this i thought oh well perhaps they'll do something like you know kick kickstart the ingenuity helicopters rotors um because that's several meters usually from the from the rover and, and if you know when the, the rotors kickstart and you know how far away it is, and then you pick up the sound of, of that happening, that might give you a measure of the speed of sound. But I, I guess that might just be too um, not specific enough a sound to do it. So they've chosen something nearer, uh, and it's not probably not that nearer. I think it's uh, probably up to three, three metres away or something like this. Um, you know, Perseverance, uh, like Curiosity, has... Uh, a laser zapper, uh, to yep. give it its technical term, um, which uh, basically zaps rocks, and they look for they look for the the, the plume of um, of vapor that comes off it when when you vaporize a little bit of a nearby rock. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what they've done is they've they've zapped a rock, uh, and they know when that instant takes place. And of course, the laser over that kind of distance. A beam is essentially travelling at infinite speed, uh, so you, that pinpoints the sound, um, the, the the event itself, uh, and the uh, and then what they can do is time the delay uh, till that little click from that zap is heard by the microphone, and when they do that, they calculate that sound is traveling at about 240 meters per second, sort of two-thirds of what we have here on planet Earth. Yeah, that's fascinating. I think so too. Um, But what's more surprising, because this doesn't really happen on Earth, um, it's that um, if you go to higher frequencies, uh, you get higher speeds. (laughs) So... Wow. um, 
it, um, in fact, the figure that's been quoted uh, in, in the article that, that I've been reading says the speed increases by approximately 10 metres per second above 400 hertz. So that's, well, 400 hertz is not far off, you know, the, the, the A uh, on a piano that you tune, that you tune to. It's uh, the, um, you know, mm. a, a above middle C. Um, so, but, but what that means is if you've got different frequencies coming at different speeds, um, assuming that you could talk to people on Mars, and of course you can't because the atmosphere is far too thin, but you can imagine that different, the different frequencies in your voice would arrive at different times. Oh, gosh, can um, you imagine that? It's bad enough, you know, <laughs> trying to understand what people are saying when that doesn't happen. But, yeah, can you imagine it? That would be mm. pretty garbled. Yeah, I, I, I did, I've sort of made a joke of it in the past, but um, because of the thin atmosphere, hearing someone talk, if you could talk openly on the surface of Mars, would be really muffled apparently, very, mm. very difficult to literally pick up what the words are because of the, the muffling effect. But if you've also got the different frequencies arriving at different times, that could be a nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> it would. Tell you what, it would make space nuts sound good, wouldn't it? <laughs> you know, yes. It <laughs> yes. I, well, we talk like that anyway. We're all, all on different frequencies. Yeah, but yeah. really interesting finding. And so it kind of sent me looking, you know, to – um, what happens on Earth. And generally speaking on Earth, the frequencies arrive more or less at the same time. And, and mm -hmm. it, it, it's obviously to do with the physical structure of the atmosphere, the properties of the atmosphere itself. And maybe that thinness uh, of the Mars atmosphere is what actually, uh, what actually causes that separation of frequencies. Maybe. And it opens up the question as to um, how sound goes on different on other planets yeah like yeah that's right what what it might be like if you could stand on venus for example or uh or Ooh, pluto yeah. you know yeah it's yeah um it just proves that uh, we are certainly endemic to this planet and not built to be anywhere else <laughs> that's quite correct andrew <laughs> Um, we would have a lot of trouble. Yeah, we might wind up. Um, we might wind up talking about this again, though, because the the the, the, the little team that's working on this is um, they're going to continue this work, uh, monitoring and analysing sounds from Mars uh, to see how how it, how the effects change during the Martian seasons, um, and um, you know because temperature changes on Mars uh, over uh, seasonally, uh, and of course they get these dust storms as well on Mars. So uh, it'd be really interesting to know what a dust storm does to this, the, the way sound is transmitted. Yes. Of course, the solution to this we already have, and that's uh, wireless. <laughs> yes, that's a good idea. Why didn't yeah. you think of that? So even if you could walk around without a spacesuit on, on Mars, um, even if the atmosphere made it impossible for you to talk to each other, you could do this. You could <laughs> Microphone and headphones, all solved. Uh, solved. What a great well, it, worked, it worked for Apollo, didn't it, on the moon? <laughs> well, yeah. They could talk to each other. Of course they did, yeah. 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 So, um, yeah, we already have the solution to the problem, but uh, it is really interesting to uh, to be able to – and who knows what we could learn from that kind yeah. of situation. Well, it's telling us about, you know, the properties of a very different atmosphere from what our Earth's atmosphere is. Yeah. Mm. A mm. nice, yeah. nice piece of work, you know, nice. 
nicely done to think about measuring the speed of sound on Mars. Absolutely, yes. All right. This is Space Nuts. I'm Andrew Dunkley with Professor Fred Watson. Space Nuts. Now, I'd like to say thank you to everyone who's sent in reviews uh, for Space Nuts because uh, it's, it's been fantastic, the response. We've had, uh, I think, on one particular platform over 250 reviews, uh, maybe more, I don't know, and, uh, and I, I'm so pleased to see that our star rating is half a star short of five. <laughs> gotcha. Short of five, four and a half stars. So thank you for the positive reviews. That's greatly appreciated. And the more reviews, the better. Uh, it spreads us out to more and more potential uh, listeners who have a, an interest in astronomy and space science, and we'd really love to get hold of them and just sort of grow our family. So uh, if you want to do some reviews on your podcast distributor for us, that would be most, most appreciated. So uh, thank you to everyone who's done that so far. Now, Fred, we've got some questions to uh, to deal with. Uh, this first one uh, comes from Josh. Uh, is it Josh? No, it's from Josh. Yeah, it is from Josh. There's two Joshes. Okay, that's what confused me. So Josh <laughs> said, I just want to congratulate you both on the incredible podcast. I came across it late last year. I'm still catching up on all the episodes. I do have a question about the sun if it hasn't already been answered. Does the sun have seasons or weather cycles like we have on Earth or on other planets? If so, how does uh, changing condition on the surf, uh, uh, sun affect Earth's weather? Uh, I guess we've touched on it from time to time, but it's worth discussing again. Um, does the sun have seasons? Um, indeed, it does. Uh, dramatic ones too, Andrew, as, um, as, as you say, we, we have talked about before. Um, but they're different. Of course, the seasons on Earth occur because the Earth's axis is tilted over uh, at mm. 23 and a half degrees, um, which means that, you know, for part of the year, it's the northern hemisphere that gets the most sunlight. For part of the uh, rest of the year, it's the southern hemisphere that gets the most sunlight. And yes, the we're in that transition right now, we aren't are, we? The we're the certainly transition. noticing cooler conditions here at the moment. Yeah, as we tran transit, transit from one to the other. Um, so, but the sun, and, and I, I guess the sun's implicated in that, in that it's the sun's radiation that um, that we're receiving on Earth that gives rise to, well, first of all, our environment, but also the uh, the seasons that we experience throughout the year. Whereas the sun itself has its own kind of internal seasons, <clears throat> and they've been known for a long time, um, probably couple of hundred years, maybe even longer, um, when people first started, actually it's, it's definitely longer, that's probably more like 300 years, when people started counting the spots on the sun and re realised that these sunspots, uh, the numbers fluctuate uh, seasonally over a, an 11-year cycle, which we call the solar cycle. So uh, the... Yeah, that, just thinking about it, I think we're now on cycle 26. So, you know, you, you're talking about the best part of 300 years that these these have been observed for. Um, mm. uh, I don't know who who it was. It's probably Maunder or somebody like that who kicked in number one. Anyway, never mind. The, 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 the fact is that the easiest thing to observe on the sun is the change in, in the sunspot cycle over long periods. Uh, as I said, 11 years. So they go up to a maximum, 
which also coincides with things like more geomagnetic storms with uh, in heightened visibility of the aurora borealis and aurora australis um, because of the stream of particles that comes from the sun, that thing that we call the wind gets a bit stronger uh, during these times and sometimes you get solar storms which can actually cause power blackouts and things of that sort. Yeah. So, so those are all phenomena that have been well known in terms of you know just just observing what actually happens but it's only really within the last 20 years that we've had any clue at all as to what's really going on on the sun um we've known for many years probably best part of a century and a half that sunspots are magnetized uh that they usually come in pairs sort of side by side uh um, and the two the two pairs have opposite magnetic polarity so one will be north and one will be south um, and that, that switches uh, between solar uh, cycles so you know if you've got northern hemisphere sunspots with north pole leading uh, as the sun rotates uh, in the next solar cycle it'll be the south pole that's leaving in the you know leading in say the northern hemisphere so it, wow. it's it, it, do, do they know why that happens? Well, uh, that's that's the thing. No, until recently, nobody had a clue. They knew that magnetism played a part in it. But now we've got, uh, you know, several really competent spacecraft observing the sun, festooned with instruments, including one that actually skims the, uh, the, the sun's outer atmosphere, the Parker Solar Probe. Uh, mm. And so the, the magnetism is now sort of mapped in much more detail. And uh, the... The, the the understanding is that there are processes going on uh, beneath the sun's surface. And, of course, the sun's a ball of gas, so it doesn't have a solid surface that you could ever stand on. But we've got what we define as the surface is that point beyond which you can't see. All you can see is a brilliant, shining thing, which we call the photosphere. Um, yeah. Beneath the photosphere, there's this what's usually called a conveyor belt of, like, circulating material, which is stuff going... Uh, if I remember rightly, it's going up from the equator to the poles and then circulating lower down in the sun's uh, atmosphere, circulating back again. Uh, this gigantic conveyor belt that's carrying the magnetism and uh, and sunspots too, so that you've got this really um, extraordinary, uh, uh, almost a magnetic dynamo, if I can put it that way, that's taking place uh, inside the sun, giving it these well-defined seasons um it, it's it, it is really remarkable what we've learned about the sun over the last 20 years or so uh, and i'm not yeah. a solar physicist by any means so i'm not really explaining it very well but there is such uh, interest there and and you know josh might want to check out on wikipedia have a look at things like the solar the solar conveyor belt and uh, Yes, there are seasons on the sun, and they're very, very, you know, very robust. They, the 11-year cycle has been known for, as I said, probably 300 years or thereabouts. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then we experience change on Earth during those cycles too, don't we? Well, that, that's right. Sorry, yes, that's the other part of uh, Josh's question. Yes, um, there are interesting mechanisms that are not well understood. Uh, so in the... Uh, the late 17th and early 18th centuries, there was a period when there were virtually no sunspots on the sun. It's usually called the Monde Minimum uh, because of uh, a very famous husband and wife astronomy team, uh, Annie and Walter, it was Monde, um, 
who noticed these things and wrote about them. Uh, so the, the Monde Minimum was there were no sunspots, but it also coincided with a kind of mini ice age in the Northern Hemisphere. Ah. Probably not down here. It was probably the Northern Hemisphere. And it's thought to have been caused by the fact that the sun is quiet, so you get fewer um, subatomic particles coming from the sun. But what that does is it lets in other subatomic particles that come from the universe, what we call cosmic rays, high-energy cosmic rays. And they are thought to have disturbed the northern hemisphere jet stream uh, and disturb it in a way that the jet stream doesn't um, allow warm air uh, to come up and, and, you know, sort of thaw out the winters that uh, basically you got this, uh, as I said, it was, uh, you know, 70-year 70, 70 ice age, effectively, mini ice age. Fascinating. Yeah. So there's clearly wow. a connection. It's not properly understood, but uh, we do believe that there are connections between the seasons on the sun and uh, and the earth and the you know the behaviour of the earth. There you go, Josh. Um, great question. Thanks for asking that one. Uh, let's move on to a question from Judd. I think we've heard from Judd before in the past. Uh, and Andy uh, wants to talk about Uranus. I'll sort of paraphrase this just to, to keep it short. But um, uh, he says, Brian Cox mentioned how Uranus spins on its side. And, of course, you did so in your book, which Judd says he hasn't read yet. So the answer might be in your book, Why is Uranus Upside Down? Uh, its axis is tilted over, possibly due to a collision with a planet-sized object. Uh, that, um, you know, he says that would have been something to see. Yes, you wouldn't want to be too close. Uh, computer simulations suggest that when the planet was knocked on its side, all its moons and rings followed it and then rotate along the same tilted plane, which uh, prompts him to wonder why. They're not physically connected to the planet. It's just a sphere of mass. So how would the moons and rings orbit uh, be altered by the tilt of the planet's axis? Um, that is a good question, but it's probably self-evident. Um, would not most rings and moons follow the the axis of the rotation? Um, uh, look, look, I get the question. I think it, it is it is a it, you know it's an important one, and it's because uh, the. There isn't a physical connection, as so, you know. It's not bits of string that they're on. Uh, so no. you can imagine it's that gravity, it's, isn't it? Yes. So it's gravity, and so gravity is do doing the job. And in that regard, uh, you you might expect exactly what you've described to happen. But you can also think of a situation where you've got Uranus on its side, uh, and moons uh, and rings are orbiting in different planes. Um, so I think uh, what. What we're saying is that it's basically exactly as you've outlined, Andrew. I'm trying to be a devil's ad advocate here, but you've already got the answer. It's the gravitational grip that Uranus has on these objects that take, you know, that, that take them around its equator, rather than uh, even though the equator's tilted on its side. That's you know tilted sort of the poles tilted on its side, so the equator's almost vertical, um, and and give it this curious effect. Um, the, the what to me is more difficult to envisage is when that collision occurred you know that is possible that that's when some of those moons were actually created because there would have been debris and you've only to think of the origins as understand them of the earth's moon uh, which 
it came from a collision by an object we call Thea, about the size of Mars, when the Earth was barely in its uh, in its infancy. Uh, so there's a collision with the Earth, um, the, the proto-Earth. It lifts debris up and forms the Moon in its present orbit. <laughs> Sorry, my computer's slipping off my improvised stand here. <laughs> it's going to fall in my lap in a minute. Um, so, so, so I think you're right. You know, it's um, it, it's the the collision itself may well have caused some of the, that debris, and by that include mm. the moons as well as the, so, well, the computer's got a life of its own here. Just hang on a bit there. How's that? There we go. That's better. Uh, that's good. Um, yeah. Um, it, so uh, the the, uh, the 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 moons would naturally follow the rotation of the planet. Mm. That's a terribly okay. garbled explanation. For which I'm, no, that's all right. for which I um, apologise, John. But yeah, uh, you know, your statement—they're not physically connected to the planet, as Andrew has said. They are physically connected. It's gravity that is the the force that does that. Yep. And Judd, there is the book. If you want to grab hold of it, you can get it through the Space Nuts shop, and page one hundred and fifty-three. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I'd read that. As to um, why Uranus <laughs> is upside down, but it's not. It's not quite upside down. No, but, it's upside, um, yeah. Yeah, it's certainly a um, very sleepy giant, that one. Uh, now, uh, thanks, Judd. Uh, we'll go to our final question, which comes from another Josh. Now, uh, Josh um, actually comes from a town that's just down the road from here yeah. uh, in um, Dunny Doo, the, the name of the, the town. Stop laughing, you Americans. Dunny Doo, well, you wouldn't know, but Dunny is... Um, uh, a colloquial name for a toilet in Australia. So Dunny do cops a bit of a ribbing. They were actually going to put a big dunny there once, but it got voted out, which is probably a good thing. But um, anyway, uh, Josh is from Dunny do but he's a, a miner in the Hunter Valley, but he's uh, been saving his money for a career change. And he's telling us, Fred, that he, he wants to give up the 13-hour night shifts to um, switch to another night Occupation that of astronomy. He wants to know how he could uh, he could get into the trade. What do you think? Uh, look, he's a great aspiration, and um, there are, there is already uh, a, a, a person who has done exactly what Josh has in mind. Only um, he was made redundant, uh, but he uh, he was a miner in Broken Hill. Uh, I don't think he'll mind me giving his name, Trevor Barry. He's very, very distinguished astronomer now, uh, because what he did with his redundancy money was he set himself up with his own uh, private observatory, but made a speciality of observing the planets, the giant planets, and in particular Saturn. Uh, you and I have talked about Trevor before, Andrew. Uh, his observations yeah. of, of Saturn were used to, to steer the Cassini spacecraft to uh, examining, you know, the features in in Saturn's atmosphere that that were of interest. So uh, he was almost like the scout, um, had his observing Saturn every night, so he knew where all the storms were cropping up. Something really interesting was going on in the atmosphere. He could get in touch with his co colleagues at, um, at NASA, and they pointed the telescopes on the Cassini spacecraft in the right direction. And it, it produced a huge number of scientific papers. Um, and Trevor is, a, you know, is, is just such a... Uh, an inspiration uh, for somebody whose career started as a miner uh, and now is is an author on papers that um, you know that get published in the, the top journals because of the work that he's done. So there's a there's somebody to inspire you, Josh. Um, what I what I'd suggest uh, is 
um, to, to kind of follow the path that uh, that Trevor took. And it needn't necessarily involve buying your own telescope and making your, your own observatory and doing the kind of work that he did. But um, um, what Trevor did was took an online course. Uh, and there are several, an online astronomy course. He, he did the ones, uh, one of the ones at Swinburne. Um, so it was something like a graduate certificate, I think, that he got um, in astronomy. There are now others. The University of Southern Queensland does fantastic work in this area. And I'm not just mentioning that because I've got an honorary professorship there. But they do. They, they, they're great at this broad education. And they also have, at University of Southern Queensland, they have facilities. There is an observatory uh, um, Mount Kent, it's called, uh, not far from Toowoomba, uh, up there in southern Queensland, where they do uh, really interesting work on exoplanets and things of that sort, uh, which rely on their students and their, you know, their, their, their supporters uh, to 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 operate. I think a lot of it's done robotically, but um, I would I would have a look. Uh, the online courses and um, Swinburne certainly is a possibility and they still do fantastic ones. Uh, but um, yeah, check out University of Southern Queensland and Mount Kent Observatory to see whether you could do one of their courses or perhaps involve yourself with, with the work that they do because the more people involved in this, the easier it, it becomes. Um, uh, just going back to your comment about Donny Do, Andrew, uh, yeah. there is a segue that um, we could have made from the previous comment because of course. Uh, Donny Do, when, when uh, back in 2006 we put together uh, the world's largest solar system model, uh, Donny Do was very keen to have Uranus there. Um, yes. <laughs> because it sort of fitted in somehow. But in fact, it doesn't fit the you know the um, the, the geometry of this. This this uh, most of our listeners won't know what this is. The world's largest virtual solar system tour. Yeah, and, and basically, it all uh, all roads leading into all major roads leading into Coonabarabran, where your observatory is, um, were lined with the planets of our solar system on a scale that put them at the right distance from Coonabarabran, the observatory, which was the sun. Yeah. One to thirty million is the scale. Yes, and, and, and so um, here in Dubbo, we are near, is it Pluto? You've got Pluto, yeah. Beca yeah. Because Pluto was included because it was just being reclassified when yep. this all happened. And, in fact, we had to change the captions on the, on the Pluto <laughs> On the Pluto boards, but yeah, it's scaled to the the, the the diameter of the dome, which is like a half a sun. Uh, that scale to the size of the sun gives you one to thirty-eight million, and the planets are lined out on the right length. Unfortunately for Donny Do, what you get there is Neptune and not not Uranus. Yeah. So I think they've got Neptune. <laughs> would have been the perfect combination. Uh, would have worked, wouldn't would, it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Josh, good luck with your uh, studies, and and hopefully uh, we will be talking about you in the not too distant uh, future. That would be great. Making some magnificent discoveries in astronomy. Uh, and thanks for your questions. And if you do have questions for us, don't forget to jump on our website and send them to us in text or voice form. Uh, everything you need to know there. The AMA tab is where you can go to record your voice or send us text or the little tab on the right-hand side 
send us your questions or whatever it is uh, that says um, is another way, as long as you've got a device with a microphone such as a smartphone or a tablet or a laptop or something, you can send us questions and, um, yeah, that's uh, that's the way to do it. Uh, spacenutspodcast.com or spacenuts.io is where you can um, go to... Uh, see the website and um, check out the shop and send us uh, your questions or just send us some information and, and don't forget to do some reviews for us as well, as well through your favourite podcast platform. That brings us to the end, Fred. Oh, by the way, um, uh, you, were, you were wondering about your fellow travellers down there in Tasmania who were on your tour group. Um, you're, you are, of course, staying at the five-star Royal Hyatt Hilton in Launceston. <laughs> uh, they tell me that they're at the Diamond Dolan Motel at downtown Launceston, <laughs> so you got, you got the better deal. <laughs> uh, uh, I won't buy into that one because he's a bit, he's a bit sensitive at the moment. I'm sure. I just can't help having a bit of fun with you. But uh, listen, under the circumstances, thank you. Um, I know it's it's been a tough haul these last few days, but um, Godspeed and, and yeah, both you. you and Marnie and the, and the rest of the tour group get well soon. Yeah, I think we're on the path to recovery. Hope so anyway, and we'll find out next week. <laughs> yes, we will. And we'll, we'll talk to you then, Fred. Thank you so much. No worries. See you later, Andrew. Okay. Fred Watson, uh, astronomer at large, part of the team here at Space Nuts. Of course, Hugh back in the studio um, twiddling his thumbs and wondering what to do next. Uh, thank you to you too. Now, next week is 2.99. Uh, we hopefully will tell you then what to do to listen live for episode 300. That's still the plan. So um, we're going to work out our times and try and translate that into a, you know, we might do it in Zulu time so that everyone knows what time we'll be on. I don't know yet. But we'll figure that out and tell you next week. But uh, for now, thanks for joining us on another edition of Space Nuts. From me, Andrew Dunkley, bye-bye. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.